Hey guys, welcome to another huge, huge episode of Triggered. Today, we're joined by former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. Newt is the author of March to the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution. He's been a staunch warrior for the America First movement. He understands what's at stake in 2024. He knows the ins and outs of Washington as well as anyone else, a true strategist, someone that we rely on, someone who gets it. Okay, there's a lot of people that talk about it from the outside that don't exactly understand Washington, but they'd love whatever they're thinking to be the case. This guy knows the reality. And his book, March to the Majority, isn't just a historical book. It's also a playbook on how Republicans can win in 2024. You guys, I see it in the comments all the time. You guys are always asking, what can we do? What should we be doing? What aren't we doing? What do we need to stop doing? This is gonna be that conversation, so I think you're gonna really enjoy this one. So guys, just make sure you're liking, you're sharing, you're subscribing, you're downloading the Rumble app so you never miss any of these major episodes, okay? I know I'm not like everyone else. This isn't my day job. It's <laughs> I do this because I love it, because I believe in it, because I like fighting. Uh, maybe I'm a masochist, whatever it is, but you know, I'm on Mondays and Thursdays, so it doesn't become part of your regular schedule. So make sure you're liking, sharing, subscribing, downloading the Rumble app so that you can get notifications of when we're on, when we are live, etc. Don't forget, you can also, you can also get these episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, basically right after they air here on Rumble. We download them there. So if you get your podcast in a different way, or if you have friends. If you have friends that get their podcast in a different way, sign up, subscribe, send them the link so that they can listen in. It's because of you guys that we have this show. You guys make it possible, along with some of our incredible sponsors who have the guts to actually support programming like this, guys. I, like, I get it. Uh, that ain't easy. Uh, it certainly isn't. There's a lot of pressure. So make sure to check out and support these guys. Uh, it, it, it matters, guys. We can vote with our wallets. That's going to be a big part of this game. It's not just about winning the presidency or some house seats or even the school boards. If we shut down the money, we make them understand that big woke corporate, that they're going to pay a price for doing what they've been doing to us. That matters. So go check out the great folks over at Gold Co. It's a new year. I mean, we're into February now, but like it, the economic warning signs continue to amass inflation, reckless spending, global turmoil, Biden caused disasters Every day, I mean, it's every every day, sometimes multiple a day. I just want you to be prepared. So owning tangible, physical, inflation hedging gold and silver can help secure and stabilize your portfolio. You can safeguard your savings and you can do it tax and penalty free. We see what they spend our tax dollars on. It's a big part of what we talk about on this show. So being able to not pay the tax on these, that's a big deal. GoldCo is top-notch customer service. They'll answer all your questions. They'll walk you through the whole process step-by-step step so you educate yourselves. Go to donjuniorgold.com to learn more. That's D-O-N-J-R-Gold.com. Learn, educate yourself, make the appropriate decision for you, hedge against the insanity. Seems like a no-brainer. Also, guys, don't forget to go check out the great folks over at The Wellness Company, a leading provider in emergency medical kits. We talked about financial security. This is your health security. Like we saw with COVID, supply chain chaos, lockdowns, Fauci failures, all of it can make it harder to get the medicine you need for your family in a time of crisis. With the Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit, you're empowered to take control of your health. The kit includes eight life-saving medications from amoxicillin, the Z-Pak, ivermectin, to keep on hand along with a guidebook for safe and easy use. So from tick bites, to COVID, to extreme public health outbreaks. Every scenario is covered. So avoid the high costs, the hospital wait lines, and take control of you and your family's health needs. Go to TWC, like the wellness company, twc.health slash triggered, like the name of the show. And with that, you'll get a 15% discount on the emergency medical kit. That's twc.health slash triggered, 15% off, Take care of your financial security. Take care of your health and your family's well-being. Check them out and support programming like this. All right, guys. Joining me now is former Speaker of the House and author of March to the Majority, Newt Gingrich. Uh, you know, we, we go back a long ways. Back in 2015 and 2016, uh, 
Uh, the speaker gave me some of the best advice I ever got. It was about my 2016 Republican National Convention speech. And I had worked hard and tirelessly to do this speech, but I had a little bit of my, you know, Ivy League ego background. And I, you know, I had this thing and he said, this is a great speech. Take every five-syllable word and make it two-syllable. Just simplify it. And, and I did. And it, it, it went off. Uh, incredibly. So uh, I want to thank you for that. I know I've done that in the past, but I always love to give credit in public, which is not very a Trumpian kind of thing to do, but uh, I, I, I appreciate that. I figured you know the difference. Yeah, I do. And to ha having it come from a Trump is uh, truly an impressive moment. Yeah. Don't get used to it, uh, Mr. Speaker. Don't like I, This is a rare moment of weakness, but uh, tell me what's going on. What do you think's out there right now? Well, I think that the country is just in a state of shock at Biden's inability to deal with the border, his inability to deal with Iran, uh, the notion that we have three young Americans killed by Iranian proxies. So Biden's reaction is to attack uh, Israeli settlers on the West Bank. I mean, everything that's going on right now is, is crazy. The fact that the uh, group of illegal immigrants beat up several New York policemen were released without bail, and we think at least four of them have now fled New York. I mean, the average normal person looks at all this. You know, Washington, D.C., which uh, I hope your dad is going to totally clean up, and which I had cleaned up when I was speaker, um, has decayed to a point where they had 950 carjackings last year. Yeah. Uh, we just had a former Trump executive. I saw that. Uh, during a carjacking. And that carjacker went on to kill another man. Uh, he carjacked three cars in one day. Police finally tracked him down and killed him. But you look at that, this is your national capital. Yeah. You ought to be able to visit it without a sense of fear. So I, I see uh, under Biden's very weird, uh, I think weak appeasement oriented leadership, the country has slid dramatically in three years. So you know, you mentioned the border because obviously that's the big one that we see. You know, they're not exactly sending their finest. I, I see what's going on down there, and these are not scientists or uh, mechanics or uh, engineers. You know, they, these are in many cases very bad people, as we saw in New York. And yet, you know, Biden can get there on a world stage and say, "I've I've done everything I could possibly." I mean, that's just a lie. I mean, there, I think there were sixty four executive orders that made it harder for us to control our border and much easier for everyone to go in. But even still, even in the face of such obvious lies and nonsense, the, the press is playing this game. They're almost like blaming it on Republican. Joe Biden, wow, he did everything he could possibly do, which is exactly nothing. Uh, it, it's the Republicans' fault because they didn't give Ukraine another two, three, four, seven, eight hundred billion dollars. How are they getting away with that still. How can the press tell us that with a straight face? I get they're trying to sway you know, public sentiment, but it's so flagrant now, they're not even pretending. No, look, I, I think fake news turned out to be an accurate term. Uh, that's who they are. That's what they're dedicated to. They are essentially the offensive wing of the left. They make no pretense to be accurate or honest. Uh, and I'll tell you what, what's happening in the country, though. Uh, Texas is actually succeeding. Uh, somebody said that Eagle Pass had now dropped to fewer than 200 illegal immigrants a day from what had been thousands. Uh, and in fact, the uh, cartels have figured out that Texas is too hard and they've moved their effort to bring illegal immigrants to the US to Arizona and California. And I think we should be challenging the democratic governors of New Mexico Arizona and California to bring their National Guard and their state police to the border. Uh, and, and I think we should seriously be looking at a bill in Congress that would compensate the states for doing yeah. the federal government's job. Uh, Texas is actually working. It tells you how sick the Biden administration is that they're now attacking Texas to get Texas to quit oh, stopping illegal immigration. Uh, we have to remove the razor wire because Border Patrol is like, no, the Border Patrol's on the record saying they want to leave it there. Like, well, it would hurt people. It's like, well, it doesn't hurt people if you don't actually try, I don't know, crossing the razor wire. Like, this is not rocket right. science, but, the, you know, the way their minds work, it's like, I'm trying to figure it out. It's like that meme with the chalkboard and all the arrows, how to get to a result that 
it's it's pretty insane. But Greg Abbott's doing a phenomenal job. The problem is in Arizona, you have a liberal governor. In California, you have a very liberal governor. They're not going to do it. Greg Abbott deserves a lot of credit. He's doing what our border patrol should be doing. He's doing what our federal government should be doing. Uh, he's doing that going up against them. They're making it harder to do liquid natural gas stuff out of Texas as a penalty for that. So it's not like Joe Biden's, he's done everything he's good. He's actually made it difficult for Texas to do what they're supposed to be doing, but refuse to do. Well, one poll showed 69% of the American people side with Texas and 27% side with the U.S. government. Now, that is an astonishing number. And in fact, when you ask how strongly do you feel, 52% of the American people are strongly in favor of Texas, and only 15% are strongly for the federal government. I think two good examples, governor of South Carolina, of South Dakota, uh, sending Barbara extra wire to Texas, uh, because agriculturally, they have a lot of it in South Dakota. And then frankly, Governor DeSantis, sending a battalion of the Florida National Guard to help mm -hmm. Governor Abbott. I think what you're seeing, and I think 25 Republican governors now have, have sent a letter to Biden siding with Abbott and saying, if you're not going to do your job, then don't go after him for doing what should be your job. Yeah, no, I think that's right. So, you know, you, you mentioned polls there. And right now, the polls are pretty good for my father against Joe Biden. He's leading by, I think, eight points in your former, you know, your home state of Georgia. I guess maybe you're more Florida now than Georgia, but, you know, at, at least... Uh, when you were in the swamp, it was Georgia. Well, I, still uh, have, I still have a daughter and grandchildren in Georgia. Excellent. A lot of fond memories. You know, but if, for example, in, in key battleground states, do you believe the polls? You know, how much stock do you put in sort of the general election polls at this time? It feels like each area has its sort of unique way of playing games and sort of negating those polls. Now, maybe now it's so extreme they won't be able to get away with it because there is no enthusiasm for Joe Biden. There is no sentiment. There's no Biden signs around anywhere. You know, people understand. You saw the flip-flop last week. Uh, Snoop Dogg, he's like, no, nah, I love Trump. That, well, well, you know, man, he did, he did good stuff for us. What was I thinking kind of thing? You know, that was obviously during the Trump administration, it was easy to get clicks, to get love from the media and the press and, you know, probably record labels if you went after Trump. But now, after three years of Biden, you're seeing results you know, what, what, what stock do you put in those polls and what you see out there right now? Well, I think as a general indicator, if you, you know, you had four or five or six of them saying the same thing, it's probably pretty true. I think, uh, that, you know, I always like to see the initial results when yeah. the actual people show up. So uh, I talked to your dad early on uh, the day of the Iowa caucus, and I said, I think you're going to be between 53 and 60 percent. Uh, which were numbers that Matt Towery had given me. I said, but frankly, and having been there, both as a candidate and helping other candidates, mm -hmm. I said, until you see who goes out in that cold night and who actually stands there, you, you don't know. Yeah. You know what the poll says, but the caucus is different. And, and of course, he did very well. Yep. The same thing happened uh, in New Hampshire. Um, and I think that, you know, again, I'm, I'm always amazed you know, he wins by 12 points in New Hampshire, and Nikki promptly claims that she's the winner. Uh, she came yeah. in third when, in Iowa. When Democrats are literally flipping their vote for like 12 hours, you know, they, they signed up to be Republicans for a few hours so they could vote for right. Nikki Haley. And they're literally on TV on record saying, oh, yeah, no, I'm doing this. I'm just trying to stop Trump, not Trump. actually voting for Nikki Haley. I would never vote for Nikki Haley. And, you know, and the press is, Nikki Haley's overperforming. I'm like, do you hear what they're saying, though? Uh, they choose to, well, do, there's right. a lot of selective hearing there. Well, I look, I, th I think as somebody who's losing, she's overperformed, uh, but she's losing. And the, the, so my, my working assumption is that uh, President Trump will be the nominee, period. I, there, I don't, you know, barring some extraordinarily terrible health situation, I can't imagine any circumstance where he's not going to be the nominee. Uh, this, of course, drives the left crazy. I've been doing a series at the American Spectator on starting in 1960, how we got so out of whack in terms of the left and the universities and the FBI and the judges and the parallels between the hatred for Nixon and the hatred for Trump are just amazing. I mean, the left understands that he is the end of their world. Uh, I mean, if you are for radical left-wing ideas, uh, this is a matter of life and death. So 
I thought it was very revealing the other day when when uh, James Carville, the Democratic consultant, said we have to take a meat cleaver to him. Uh, yeah. It just gave you that sense of, you know, you can think of all the trials as meat cleavers. You can think of everything yeah. that's being done to him. As, I mean, this is a level of ferocity that I don't think I, I think even Andrew Jackson. Uh, didn't have this level of frosty. Lincoln. Yeah, and they, they were no fans of Andrew Jackson either. But yeah, this is this is unique. I mean, they want to put him away for a thousand years, maybe That's the right. death penalty in one of these. But you, so you said he, he's going to be the nominee, but for you know health. But what I mean, what about the lawfare? I mean, it's nonsense. I mean, people see through it. I think they see through literally all of it. It's so over the top. It's so ridiculous. The people oh. doing it are <clears throat> such corrupted, like actors, bad just bad people in their own right, and it's obvious. I mean, now they're getting caught, but that doesn't seem to actually stop the left. They don't seem to care. Like, if you get the win in D.C., you get the win. It doesn't matter, even if you've stacked the jury, even if it's biased, even if you had no chance of getting a jury of your peers, et cetera. It's the only tool they have left. Mm -hmm. And again, it's very similar to what what happened to Nixon. You you have, in Washington, D.C., Trump got about 5% of the vote. So a jury pool in Washington is 19 to 1 against him. Yeah. You can't possibly get a fair trial. Yeah. And that yeah. one is too scared to actually vote his conscience or because they know he'd, he'd be literally probably lynched in the street. He'd never be able to show up to his children's school again. He'd never get a restaurant reservation. I mean, there's a real social consequence. It's not like, hey, you could have five on that jury. But there is there is significant downside. Their names will be leaked. The press will talk about them. They will be outed as the ones that let Trump off. And it, it's a even if it's the right thing to do, even if it would be legally correct, uh, there's a true social consequence to them for actually doing the right thing. Well, and you saw the same thing in New York. Remember, this absurd $83 million deal is, is a woman who cannot remember which year yeah. she's talking about. The dress wasn't made at the time. She's accused, what was it, seven other people of the exact same thing, including Roger Ailes of Fox News. She's on the record saying she was a huge fan of The Apprentice when it was on. So 20 years after she claims this happened, she's a huge fan of The Apprentice and Donald Trump. But then magically, once he puts an R next to his name, you see the Anderson Cooper interview, you see the insanity, and yet it's inadmissible because the judge is biased and doesn't want to let it in. So a jury can't understand that there's literally zero plausible way that any of this happened, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Tom Tom Wolf wrote a novel years ago called Bonfire of the Vanities. Mm -hmm. And he described in there the corruption of the New York judicial system. This is like probably 30 years ago. Yeah. Well, we're now getting to see it at every level. Uh, you know, you. I just saw an article this morning that um, the prosecutor who has been going after your father, uh, who released the illegal immigrants who beat up two policemen, just let him go. Yeah. But he no bail. Now, he's now wants to retry the chief financial officer of of the Trump company, uh, and you have to say to yourself, you know, th- this is such corrupt, blatant politics that I think what it does is it undermines belief in the law. And I think that increasingly people understand that this entire episode is about politics and power. We, we're replacing the rule of law with the rule of power. And that is really dangerous in a free society. Yeah, people have to understand that, right? When you do that, there, there's a point where there is no return, right? The, the pendulum swings too far and you never actually get it back. Once that becomes the norm, that's the norm in perpetuity, you know, barring, you know, li- quite literally some sort of revolution. I mean, it's sort of 1776, right? I mean, without a revolution, that becomes the norm and the America you know and love ceases to exist as we know it. You know, Ad- Admiral Cunningham, who was in charge of the uh, British Navy, off of Crete, was told that if they stayed and tried to help evacuate the the troops that were on the island, that they might lose so many ships to the German Air Force that they would literally lose the ability to control the Eastern Mediterranean. And he thought for about 30 seconds, he said, you know, it takes two years to build a ship. It takes 200 years to build a tradition. Mm -hmm. And we're not leaving. 
Yeah. Well, we have we're in the same boat. We had founding fathers who created this astonishing instrument called the Constitution. We have been the freest people in the world. We have expanded a participation as a citizen to every background, every religious background, every racial background, to to men and women, and we've we established a structure of freedom. And the reason I'm doing this series at, at uh, the American Spectator is I began to be curious about around 1960, the left began to just attack and undermine the entire American system. And these are people who hate America. Mm -hmm. uh, Biden you know, wants millions of illegal immigrants to say it different is a lie. Biden wants to appease the Iranians, no matter how many Americans they kill. Uh, Biden has no real policy on the, you know, we, we lose today over 100,000 young Americans a year to drug overdose, which is more than we lost in eight years in Vietnam. Uh, it's now such a disaster that Portland uh, has, announced, has declared a drug emergency. Uh, San Francisco is going through the same cycle. And all of a sudden, all these liberal ideas that were supposed to work are turning out to be cancers that yeah. are eating at the very core of our society. Well, I saw, what was it, Oregon is, they're shocked uh, that legalizing heroin has not, in fact, reduced, I mean, I'm like, what, how do these people get elected into office? There's, you know, the only thing, you know, not common in D.C. and in government these days is sense. Common sense is totally out the window and missing. Well, on the left, they live in an alternative fantasy world. Yeah. I always tell people that liberals can't deal with, with violence, whether it's criminals or terrorists or countries, because they saw The Lion King and they thought it was a documentary. <laughs> and they actually they actually think that that lions and zebras sing and dance together. Yeah. And when we try to explain to them that lions actually eat zebras, they go, no, no, didn't you see the movie? Don't you realize yeah. that they're friends? And and that that's Biden with Iran. I mean, Iran taunts us. Uh, they chant death to America. The Ayatollah Khomeini goes on national television and says, I want you to understand death to America is not a slogan. It's our policy. And they then go out and, and we've had 150 attacks on Americans and Biden doesn't get it. You know, no, well, they the give first, them six. They give them six billion dollars, and they say, "No, no, no, that money's for aid." Like they don't even understand that money's fungible. You know, if, if you get six billion here, maybe it, you use it for aid and it's locked up, but that frees up six billion that they were going to have to spend on aid or food or whatever it was, and and they don't even put that together. I mean, the the frustration I get watching these things and watching how far it's fallen, how far that slipped away is, uh, it. It's truly sad, actually, at this point. Now I'm watching Americans actually getting killed, and they don't get that it's because they've exuded such weakness, they're almost encouraging our enemies to attack. Well, I remember when they lifted the sanctions on buying oil, they enriched Iran unbelievably. I think over, they went from about four or five billion dollars in total currency when your dad left office to around 70 billion today because Biden lifted the sanctions on oil. Yeah. And then he turns around this last week and he announces that we're going to stop any more liquid natural gas facilities for exporting liquid natural gas to Europe, et cetera. All of that makes Russia and, and Iran yeah. richer. I mean, yeah. it's almost like they sit around the White House and say, what is it we can do to strengthen our enemies and weaken yeah. our allies? Uh, I, I say it all the time. It it. If you were, you know, the proverbial, you know, Manchurian candidate, right? If you were trying to destroy America from within, what would you do differently than what today's Democrat Party is actually doing? And the answer is nothing. That's that's scary. But you're right. You you see it with Iran. Uh, you see it with uh, with Russia and everything going there. But you wrote a book, you know, Trump versus China. I mean, th no conversation like this would be complete without what's going on in China. Talk about the, you know the growing threats from Beijing uh, and how my father, back when it was at his White House, could effectively confront the threat that they posed and, you know, and perhaps, you know, contrast that to what we're seeing from Joe Biden, uh, you know, in China. Well, when, when Claire Christensen and I wrote uh, Trump versus China, we were really surprised. I mean, I've been dealing with China my whole career, uh, but I realized that uh, President Trump had instinctively understood uh, 
that they would only respond to strength, that they were our competitors, not our allies, that they routinely would cheat. Uh, and he dealt with them appropriately. I mean, he was, he was a very tough, very effective negotiator. I mean, as an example of strength, uh, when they first had, as you, and you know this story, you may even have been there, uh, that when they first had Xi Jinping, the Secretary General of the Chinese Communist Party and President of China, and, and it's important to remember his jobs come in that order. Yes. It's, it is a communist dictatorship. Mm -hmm. uh, and when he had him to, to Mar-a-Lago for dinner, and he said uh, about halfway through dinner, gee, I've got to step out for a minute. And uh, he went out yeah. and briefed the press that we had just fired Tomahawk missiles and destroyed uh, a number of aircraft on some Syrian airfields. Yep. And he stepped, stepped back in and said, gee, I'm sorry I had to get out, but you know, we had to do this. I am confident that that was all by design. Yeah, well, it, when he said that, when he tells that story, it's it's pretty amazing. You got I got to have him back on the show to actually tell that story because it, you know, you get the Trump. It, it, oh, it's like you know, you're having a great negotiator. You know, they're smart guys. They're tough. Whatever it is. Oh, hey, by the way, I just you know, and they'd been helping sort of Syria at the time, so I was like, hey, we're not doing anything towards you guys, but just wanted to let you know, there's a couple tomahawk missiles in the air. They're gonna make their they're gonna make landfall in about thirty seconds. Uh, and then we went, uh, you know, fifty nine for fifty nine or whatever it was. It was like. It, it, that that was a that was what we call a power move. That was a flex. Yeah, and then look, and and I think it, it was, you couldn't have sent a better signal about Taiwan. Well, the same thing happens when the Iranians are beginning to really bother us. Uh, we track down Soleimani, who was the head of the Iranian uh, Republican Guard and their their chief organizer of terrorism for twenty years. And we track him down. It was really amazing, almost like science fiction. They figured out where he was going to be at the airport in Iraq at what time. And magically, he got killed. Yeah. Now, if you're the Iranians and you suddenly realize we could target your top general and actually get him, uh, the Iranians became dramatically more quiet yeah. uh, because we also sent the signal, we can do this to you guys. Uh, yeah. And of course, when, when so what I, what I thought was impressive and very much like Reagan is that President Trump believed in, a, in, in tremendous military strength, but very careful surgical use, yeah. not getting sloppy, not going out here in a way that, I mean, the idea of playing whack-a-mole with Iranian proxies is just stupid. Yeah. Uh, we're using million-dollar missiles to stop $100,000 uh, and then $20,000 missiles that is a dead loser in the long run. Yeah, uh, we'll 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 go broke trying to buy enough missiles. Yeah, no, w without question. I, I guess so. You know, you see what's going on in in the House. You see what's going on in Washington D.C. You know, what parallels do you see between sort of your march to the majority in the '90s, right, and your speakership to what my father is facing in 2024? What the you know what you know the current speaker is facing? What can we learn from 1994 in 2024? Well, I mean, I would say, first of all, the 1994 was standing on Reagan's shoulders. Yeah. And I think the real parallel to where we are right now is Jimmy Carter in 7980. Uh, Carter was a disaster. He wasn't as big a disaster as, as Biden, but he was a disaster. Iran, ironically, was in the fight again because they had the hostages. Mm -hmm. And we had a 444-day hostage crisis. Our military failed trying to rescue the hostages. And we had a very, very painful and difficult disaster in the middle of the Iranian desert. Um, <clears throat> Carter clearly was out of touch with reality. Uh, he gave this amazing speech about how we all have to learn to do less. And he was wearing a sweater sitting in front of a fireplace with a fire on. I mean, the average American looked at that and thought, this is all just weird. Yeah. And along comes Reagan. And <clears throat> two things happened. One was that we nationalized the election. I, I actually was a freshman member and I organized the first Capital Steps event and the first contract with America in September of 1980 with Reagan. And we had every federal candidate come in and we all stood there and pledged to do a handful of things that we knew were very popular. The other thing he did though, was he made it a national campaign. There was a clear choice. And we built on that and in 1994, we created a clear choice. Well, if you look at how Democrats are currently voting uh, in the House and in the Senate, and you look at the way issues are evolving, as I said a while ago, you know, when 69% of the country is supportive of Texas, uh, 
And you know that the Democrats in the House have, I've been trying to get the Speaker to bring up a bill on suspension, applauding Texas and encouraging it, uh, just because the Democrats would then have to you know, line themselves up with the 27%. Yeah. And I think that uh, we have a real opportunity. One, one of the things that I'm working on is I think people are really tired of, of the fighting and the negativity and uh, the viciousness. Uh, the fact that 96 out of the 100 top uh, television shows were uh, NFL football games tells mm -hmm. you that people are literally trying to hide from how gruesome and how disgusting and how tiring the whole government political system is. And I think there's an opportunity here uh, for your dad to become the candidate much as Reagan was. Right? Reagan was very deliberately the candidate of the future. He talked about an opportunity society. He talked about the, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet. He said America's best days are ahead of it, not behind it. He deliberately contrasted Carter's commitment to malaise and getting by with less. And he said, that's that's not us. That's not who we are. I think we can offer the American people uh, a dramatically uh, better future, uh, and we could be the we could be the party of hope and, and opportunity uh, th this fall. And and I really, in fact, I'm I'm trying to convince uh, the campaign now that I wish he would spend about a fourth of his time going to places that are creating the future. You yeah. you look at the Starship, for example, uh, thirty six rocket engines the largest vehicle going into space in history, the beginning and, and reusable. So it is the beginning of a crash in cost and a dramatic increase in opportunity. Uh, Dr. Mike Roizen just wrote a book called uh, Real Age. And he said that people 20 today will probably live to be at least 115 because all the biological breakthroughs that are occurring. Uh, artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence are gonna give us tools that allow us to dramatically rethink government. Uh, I've, I've said to people for a long time, you don't need 26,000 people in the Pentagon. Yeah. That's the number they had in World War II with manual typewriters, carbon paper, and filing cabinets. You probably could reduce the Pentagon to a triangle and actually have a better defense system. And so I, I just think we're at the edge of breakouts that are going to be so unimaginable. And if we became the party of the future and the party of hope and the party that said once again, you you didn't say nothing, and you contrast that with, with the best example is cars, where, where President Trump has absolutely taken the right position. Six percent of the country wants to buy an electric car. Yeah. The rest of the country thinks, you know, maybe you want to have it as your round town car, but you sure don't want to have it as your cross country car. You know, being here in South Florida, you wouldn't want to try to escape a hurricane. An electric yeah. car that has batteries and electric uh, and, and and water don't it just doesn't work all that well, especially salt water. That it's a crazy. it's a serious problem. Yeah. yeah. So so, so the very fact that Biden wants to force us to buy the car they own, he wants to force us not to use a gas stove. I mean, you go down the list of things. We can be the party of opportunity that says, you know, you want to have more choices, not more bureaucracy. You ought to have more opportunity, not more red tape. And I think that gives us a chance this fall to have just a breathtaking election. I, I certainly hope so. It's, it scares me a little bit, the stat that you said about, you know, 96% of the top viewed things are football games and people are hiding from it because I, I hope they're not hiding because they're not noticing. I, I hope they just understand what's actually going on in the world. They're not just listening to, you know, sort of the CNN, let's call it the narrative take, not what's actually happening, but what you know, the Democrat talking points are about what's happening, which is very different than reality. So if they're if they're hiding from that and well, believing think, what they hear in the background, that's scary to me. Well, I think it's just the opposite. I think they know the carjackings are going on. They know that illegal immigration is going on. They know people are dying of drugs. I mean, and they know that right now they can't do anything about it and it drives them crazy. Yeah. And they don't want to wallow in it and they don't want to be immersed in it. But but every poll I've seen, people get it. People, I, I, are, this is why Biden's numbers are so bad. People know this is not working. I think you're right. Listen, I I certainly hope so. And I, I'd love to. You know, you you would know this better than anyone. Now it's it's obviously interesting in the House. You have a you know two person majority right now. This is not easy. You're not going to get a lot of the legislation done. But you still control you know the power of the purse strings. There's a lot that we could be doing if we were together. You know, how do you assess the current state of the House? GOP under Speaker Johnson. What would you be doing right now if you were Speaker with a slim majority that he has? 
And what would you be doing okay, differently? I think, well, I think with the majority of two, uh, you just have to be really, really careful. And you have, uh, you have to spend most of your time listening and trying to get people to listen to each other. Uh, and recognize, and then you have to pick targets you can actually achieve. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought, for example, the tax cut bill that they just passed, which really included precisely the kind of uh, child uh, tax credits that your dad asked for and didn't get out of Nancy Pelosi. Uh, and at the same time, every conservative economist I've talked to, including the people at the America First Policy Institute, said that the, the changes in this bill in terms of capital investment and build a business, uh, small business in particular, were so powerful that it was really a big deal. Well, they got it through with a big bipartisan majority. Took a lot of yeah, work. Yeah, they wouldn't give it to uh, Trump because it was good for the American people, but it would also be good for Trump. So they're willing to throw the American people under the bus to, to stop right. Trump from getting a win, which, you know, tells us a lot about Washington, D.C. to begin with. That's right. And and uh, I said, so we'll see what the Senate does and whether they uh, destroy the bill on the way through. But I think there are things like that. I thought it was very significant that the House Republicans passed H.R. 2, which is a very tough border bill. You know, and our goal on the border should be no, no illegal immigration. Yeah. And I'm very doubtful about the uh, Senate version, this so-called compromise, because my experience, first of all, my experience is anytime a bill has to be kept secret, you know, there are probably bad things in it where they wouldn't have a secret. So we'll see now that it's finally being published. But I'm against a bill which says, well, it's okay to have X thousands a day. Yeah, 5,000 uh, no. a day. That's like, just so we're clear, I think it was Jay Johnson under Obama, his Homeland Security guy said 1,000 was too much. That was an invasion. That was not sustainable. That was eight years ago. They, that that's not all that long ago. So what changed? 1,000 was unsustainable under a Democrat who was all for uh, illegal immigration as far as I'm concerned, but it was still too much. They recognized that that was not plausible. It was not livable. It was a disaster. But now Republicans are saying, you know what? Five times that number forever, 5,000 each and every day, no vetting, nothing. It's just that's guaranteed. That's well, 2 million people a year almost. It's It's lunacy. Well, and the Iranians have a strong alliance with with the Venezuelan dictatorship, and Biden actually favors Venezuelan illegal immigrants. Yeah, they don't want people and, from Cuba and people escaping, you know, other areas that aren't going to be Democrats. They're only in favor of illegals who will actually be Democrat voters. That well, seems like a problem. But, but beyond that, you've had some senior retired FBI people who just wrote a very serious letter uh, to the president, to the heads of the House and Senate saying, we need to understand how many young males of military age are now entering the U.S., and we have no idea how many of them potentially form a military force against the United States in a crisis. Yeah. So the, one of the dangers is that the Iranians may well have several thousand people now inside the United States who, if we start taking on Iran, uh, you may suddenly find a mobilization on a way that we just have never thought about. I mean, these things are really serious. And for some reason, you cannot get the Democrats to understand how dangerous it is to allow uh, millions of people to come in here without any kind of investigation, any kind of checking for public health or any kind of checking to see uh, whether or not they are potentially terrorists. Yeah, no, I mean, imagine what a few thousand, it is probably much more than that, a few thousand people that could be activated as sleeper cells, what that could do, just randomly, hey, it's time. You know, some random email account, they just get, just go do whatever you can do, you know, figure it out, it doesn't matter. Uh, what the damage that could do, the turmoil that that would cause to America, and and that they know it because they've got hundreds of people that are on terror watch lists that they've caught. Imagine the ones they're not catching. I mean, it's almost so obvious that they're setting this up for, you know, an event that they could weaponize against us. And we're just, you know, stick our head in the sand and pretend like nothing's going on. It's it's lunacy. It is. I mean, it, it really makes you think that this is the most irresponsible and most destructive presidency in American history. Mm -hmm. uh, I think if it passes anything that Buchanan did just before the Civil War, uh, I, I, I literally cannot think of any other administration that has taken as many risks with our national survival yeah. as the Biden administration has taken. I find it, as a historian, very, very sobering. 
So, you know, it's something else you're familiar with because you probably had to work with them a lot uh, back in the day. But there's a there's a real growing frustration. I see it here in the comments. I see it you know, from the base, a growing frustration with the RNC. Uh, you see sort of the lavish spending reports. You see the I mean, they, they have got more consultants you know, on payroll that I don't know what exactly they do. If anything, I sort of figured the RNC was the consultant, but they're you know, paying consultants all over the place. They're practically bankrupt going into a, an election year. Uh, they're not investing nearly as much going after Democrats or a get out the vote operation that the Democrats are doing that we're going to need. What needs to change? Uh, what do the Democrats do well that the Republicans need to emulate, that they need to adapt? Because it does not seem like we're doing it. It seems like everyone in the world it, who's not necessarily a politico, but like everyone that watches this show, it's it's the comment that comes up every other comment. They see that it's not working. They see that it's wrong. There's a frustration. Uh, what what has to happen there? Well, look, I, I have a real bias because I think the Republican consulting class is essentially wrong in how it approaches things. Yep. I think that they uh, tend to spend an enormous amount of money in a very short-sighted way. I think their model of how the American people think and work is wrong. Uh, and I think that uh, it is a huge challenge. And in many ways, the RNC simply reflects uh, the Republican Party as it has been. Um, you know, we, we were very fortunate when we ran the contract with America that we had Haley Barber as the RNC chairman mm -hmm. and that Haley is a great natural politician. And he was able to help make the contract with America uh, a real factor in 1994. Uh, I think that the <clears throat> Republican National Committee uh, has to have designated assignments and metrics of achievement for it to be effective. And I think all too often uh, the Republican National Committee chair members uh, are a club. Uh, yeah. They're not held accountable. They get reelected at the state level because they've been, some of them have been there because they've been there and therefore they're going to be there. Uh, and yeah. their number one job is to make sure they stay there. Yeah, the uh, votes within, you know, there's a hundred, for those who don't know, there's 168 members, I believe. And, you know, yeah. when they vote amongst themselves, it's like, if you're not in that club, you're not getting a vote. The vote is quiet. They're silent. They expect the American public to keep giving them more money to do things. But there does not seem to be a level of transparency that would, uh, that we would expect given, you know, that they're supposed to be representing us. Well, and I, I think that, I mean, one of the lessons I learned from both Nixon and Reagan is that you have to be noisy. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they should be the, the, the cutting edge of taking on, and, and frankly, some of their individual staffers do a good job. I, I get a lot of their emails, mm -hmm. and I think that they, uh, individual staffers are, are uh, sincere and hardworking and do some pretty good work, which I steal regularly from my newsletters. Uh, but overall, they don't have a, a strategic vision of how you shape all this. Um, you know, when, when we put together what was a 16-year project that I wrote about in March, the majority, um, we, we learned that you had to have a message, you had to have a messenger, and you had to have the machinery to get people turned out. Yeah. And unless you had all three, you weren't going to win. And I think that uh, the RNC should play a much bigger and more aggressive role uh, because we're, we're not like the Democrats. Democrats have the New York Times, the Washington Post, yeah. uh, NBC News. They, they have uh, the Harvard faculty. How about I mean, Google? <laughs> they, have they have Google, Google and, and, and big tech and Facebook yeah. and Instagram right. and Snapchat. And right. So part of the reason we have to have very, very clear messages is that we can't win a tactical fight of making stuff up every morning. Yeah. We can win if we say things that are real and that reflect people's lives. That's why the, the, the longer the illegal immigration crisis goes on, the more it's translated into the evening news, uh, the more people realize it, no matter what the national media says. And frankly, most Americans now don't trust the national media. Yeah. Uh, it is really, and I, I attribute part of this, and I'm looking at both Nixon and, and Trump. It's fascinating because Nixon really was trapped into believing the system somehow would be fair. Your father figured out in 2000, <laughs> yeah. it ain't going to happen that way. 
And when he invented the term fake news, yeah. he really cut through an amazing amount of the baloney. And he allowed his supporters to understand, oh, yeah, that is what they're doing. Uh, I, I don't know if I've ever told you, but I, when Callisto was the ambassador to the Vatican, we went up to Turin on uh, one weekend. Mm -hmm. And they, it turns out they have the second best Egyptian museum outside of Egypt after the British Museum, just for unique local reasons. So we're going through this museum with a local guide from Turin. <clears throat> and he points over and he says, you see that statue? People are going to tell you X, Y, and Z. He said, but I want you to know that's fake news. And I stood there, I thought to myself, I'm standing in Turin, Italy, with an Egyptian museum guide who is using Donald Trump's language. Yeah. And I thought there was an example of something which penetrated the culture all around the planet. Well, I think you, you see that. I think you, you see it, you know, with the election of Mille in Argentina and others around the world. I, you know, people are catching on. They understand that the system has been stacked against them. They understand that the people that were giving them the news aren't uh, unbiased journalists. They're very biased. They're very much have an agenda. And, you know, and it, so they're getting that. So hopefully if there's one thing we accomplished in all of this is that we've woken up people to what's actually going on. But I'd like to ask, you know, about the primary right now. My father, I mean, he's obviously dominating the primary, but how much would a, a dominant 50-state primary sweep, you know, affect momentum? Because, you know, so much of this is momentum, right? But yeah. going, you know, heading into the convention this summer, and, and why is Nikki Haley out there still pretending she's really in this race? Well, you, you managed to cover about five different things just now. Look, <laughs> Probably. Uh, I talk I a mean, lot. Well, no, it's just, I mean, you, you wrapped them all up. So let me try to run through them. Um, I believe, and, and I've said this to President Trump, he every time he wants to say Nikki Haley, he should say Joe Biden. Nikki Haley doesn't exist. She is not a threat. And pay, pay, taking any attention to, to go after her, it, it actually reduces him and, huh. and, 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 and slows down the process of focusing. I, I wrote a piece the other day, a newsletter, Gingrich 360, saying this will be the longest general election campaign in history. And he, sh he should have, as of New Hampshire, he should have said, OK, I'm clearly going to be the nominee and I'm going to focus only on Joe Biden from here on mm -hmm. out. And if Nikki wants to stay around as a hobby, that's certainly her right to stay around and just ignore her. I mean, what she wants to do is bait him. I mean, she is desperate to get his attention because only by getting into a fight with him uh, does she have any hope of getting anything done. So his best strategy is to say it's a free country. If she wants to waste a bunch of billionaires' money, that's certainly her prerogative. And if the billionaires are dumb enough to give it to them, you know, that's their right as Americans. But it's not going to matter, which I I don't think it's going to matter. I think yeah. I, I can't imagine her being able to put together a campaign. I don't I don't think she'll win South Carolina. And once she's lost her own home state, I don't understand the rationale. But here's why she stays in. Because you, had ju you just had a major Republican billionaire write a $5 million check. Yeah. Uh, there are people out there who dislike Donald Trump so much that they are prepared to spend huge amounts of money in the, in the, in the absurd hope that they can stop him. Now they're not. Yeah, well, they, they also want to not just stop him, but they want to also be the puppet master for whatever candidate they put in those positions. Uh, you know, that, that seems to be clear. You know, the billionaire class has not served America well. Uh, they've exported our American dream. Uh, they've you know given away all our jobs to save two cents on a widget that they could get out of China for you know a little bit cheaper. Uh, there's a reason that the billionaires have united against Trump because I mean I think they all actually probably did well under Trump's policies. They just didn't have the control they wanted. And for you know politics for them uh, is very much about control. Well, and these are people who really did make so much money out of China that they oh, can't yeah. possibly deal with China in any kind of tough way because it's been the base of their income. Well, so, and they're so vested there right now. If they took policies that were bad for China, they just shut them down. I mean, you know, right. Apple is beholden. All these major corporations are beholden. They spend years trying to get in there. They give up their IP. They do all the do. They they bend the knee to any whim that China has. And then once they're in, they still got you because they can shut you off like that. They'll take it all. They'll they'll knock it off, and and, and you're done. But that's how they've effectively controlled big corporate in America. Right. So so that block of elitists are desperate. And frankly, as you know, I mean, if, if you're that wealthy, um, $5 million is not a major 
bite of your income. And so they are propping her up in the hope that something will happen. Now, I personally think it's foolish, yeah. and I think that she would actually be better off to get out of the race. But I think when she loses her home state, she loses any plausible argument uh, for being a real candidate. So earlier I mentioned how you really helped me with my RNC speech. It was probably some of the best advice I have ever gotten. Uh, I was almost in trouble because people were like, can we have him run all? <laughs> I was like, I don't, just don't, don't show those articles to my dad. You know, there's only one yeah. king, right? Let's just slow down there. I had Rudy. That was the greatest speech ever. I was like, I don't need this headache. It's just, you could say it was good, uh, but it went over well. But you know, can you give some advice on you know, to others? You know what makes a good political speech. I mean, so many people now they watch this stuff. They're getting activated. They want to get involved. And they, you know, again, they may not be running for president, but maybe they're running for their school board. You know, I, you what know, does it take, and what, what does it take to connect so well with hardworking Americans? I think my father does a pretty good job of it. it what, what is that missing link for a lot of people? You know, and I think one of the things that that helped your dad was that he was so much involved in construction, not just finance. Yeah. So he was out there talking to blue collar workers, talking to guys who did the plumbing, did the bricklaying, you know, did the construction. And he had to learn to communicate at a level that they understood, yep. not at a level that he learned at Wharton. Uh, and so I think as a result, then he did the, he did the apprentice. And, the, and, and there he began to really, I think, understand what the American consumer market is like. Mm -hmm. I, I used to tell reporters in 15 and 16 that if The Apprentice had been right after Downton Abbey on PBS, they would have understood Trump. Yeah. But because it was on commercial television, almost <laughs> no reporter in Washington had ever seen it. Yeah. And they had no idea how good he was on TV. So I, I started, I, I first, uh, one of the great lessons I had was in 1974. I got to spend time with Reagan and he showed me how he did speeches. And the way Reagan did it is he had thought through ideas that he wanted to talk about. And he would have 60 or 80 four by six cards uh, in his briefcase. When he got to an audience, he would try to figure out who they were, what they were interested in, and he would take out 20 cards that he thought would work best with that audience. He would then shuffle the cards. And he said, if he gave the same speech every day, he would get bored. People could tell from his body language that he was bored and they would get bored. But if he, didn't know, if he didn't know what was following card three, so he had to figure out the bridge between card three and whatever the next card was. He would have adrenaline. He'd be leaning forward because he'd be having to think through and how am I going to get from A to you know, this to that. Yeah. And the result was that people would pay attention to his speech because they were curious. He was curious what was coming next, so they were curious. Yeah. Well, I took that model and I got to a point where uh, I, I, all, all of my speeches, with very, very rare exception, are off the cuff. Usually I take a, a legal pad, piece of paper, put it in fours, and just write no, one, you know, one or two words to trigger each thing. Yeah. Here's what people need to remember. All communication occurs in the mind of the listener or the reader. So it's not what you say, it's what they hear. Mm -hmm. And so you have to start with, what is it I want them to hear? It has to be in a common language that everybody can understand. Yeah. So speaking at a fifth or sixth or seventh grade level isn't a sign that you're stupid, it's a sign you're really smart. Um, you have to have, I think, no more than three big themes and I think the old rule, you start by telling them what you want them to know. You have a middle where you explain it all. And then you close by reminding them what you want them to know. That actually works. Now, I personally also like Q&A. I think yeah. when, when you give audiences a chance to ask questions, they get excited because now they're in charge. And they have much more adrenaline. So I, 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 I try very hard not to give speeches where it's just me talking and then I get off stage. Uh, th those are some basic ideas. No, I, I think that's important. I, I do the same thing. I, I don't even have bullet points anymore. And it actually caused some problems for me when, you know, when I used to open up for like, you know, a Mike Pence or something like that, because, you know, guys that are a little bit more programmatic, well, what's he going to say next? It's like, he, he'll keep going. It doesn't matter. We, we have no idea, but it also kept it fresh for me, where there are guys that are a little bit more formulaic politicians that after about, you know, two days traveling with them, I can give their speech Right. And you're right, because it's the same thing, it's just regurgitated. Uh, authenticity seems to be everything. 
And if you're you're just memorized it and delivering the same old rote line, uh, you you lose a lot of the authenticity. But I, what I'd like to, you know, on the flip side of all of that, what do you think motivates like the unhinged, you know, Trump derangement and rage uh, that we see from the left? I mean, I I still can't figure. I, we may disagree on a lot, but you know, Democrats in the past, at least, I felt like we wanted some of the same things. You know, is wanting a secure border so disastrous? Uh, higher wages for the lowest income earners is that so terrible? I, I don't understand. What, what is it that those guys are hearing uh, that enrages them so badly? Well, I think it, I think it's two very different things. Uh, one of which you may not want to comment on. Uh, I think one of them is that he is the greatest mortal threat to the old order that we have seen in my lifetime much bigger threat than Reagan, a much bigger threat certainly than we were with the contract. And so they are genuinely terrified. These are people who've spent their entire lifetime creating an anti-American movement that they deeply, passionately believe in. I mean, they're very sincere in that sense. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, they're facing a guy who has the courage to take them head on, who is smart enough to figure out strategies that break them up, and who could literally mean the end of the world they've spent their entire lifetime trying to build. So part of it is a genuine fear reaction, and, and therefore it gets translated into hatred because he, he could literally destroy their world. Mm -hmm. The other thing which he compounds, which none of us have any ability to get him to quit doing, is he cannot help being outrageous. <laughs> just, just, hey, hey, listen, uh, yeah, you're right. I probably can't comment, but I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> and so what he does is where, where Reagan had a knack of being so pleasant that even as he was taking apart the Soviet empire, for example, uh, he could meet with Gorbachev and there wasn't, although the one time they met in Reykjavik, that we had the, which Chris and I did a movie uh, called Rendezvous of Destiny about Reagan. And we have this great video where Reagan is standing at next to the uh, Soviet limousine and he is putting his finger in Gorbachev's chest. And with great anger, he's saying to him, you had a chance to have a real deal and you blew it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the only time I've ever seen Reagan really angry. Uh, but Reagan would, would, would have never done some of the things. That, and some of, it, some of it, I think your dad does uh, because it's either entertaining or, or it reflects something. Some of it I think he does just because uh, he has this instinctive counterpunch yeah. approach. Uh, but well, and, and a lot of what they said about him has just been lies, right? They, you know, he's, you know, the P tape, uh, he's a Russian asset. They wanted to put me in jail for treason, you know, crime punishable by death. They're trying to put him in jail. So when people are like, I don't love his demeanor, I'm like, you know what, if they went after you the way they went after him, which is unlike any other American politician ever, uh, you know, and the, and his family and everyone and lied about him and you know, and then it all comes out true and there's no accountability, no consequence, there's no ramifications. You know what? I don't know. Your attitude would be different too. Yeah, there's there's a great line from the German poet Rilke, who said, "If you drive away my demons, will my angels leave also?" And yeah. I would say that that if <laughs> if President Trump wasn't so aggressive a counterpuncher, he might not still be standing. Correct. So yeah, yeah people. Some, how do some, you do it? It's like it's just him because he he yeah. is a fighter. It, but you know, and it's, it's, it's instinctive. But I think on balance, um, he is so important to the future of the country, and he is the only person I've met, and I've, I've been at this business uh, since August of 1958. Mm. And you know, I worked closely with with uh, Reagan. I knew Nixon pretty well. I, I knew both of the Bushes some. Uh, Trump is the only person I've met who I think has the sheer courage uh, to take the beating, keep coming, and potentially genuinely get the country back on track. Oh. And that's why I've always stuck with him, even on days when I'm so mad at him I can't stand it. Uh, because <laughs> I, know, I know that underneath those things, yeah. there is this enormously patriotic, deeply intelligent person who is doing everything he can to help this country survive and remain free. And, you know, you can put up with a fair amount if you think that's true. And I don't think there's any replacement for him. I think no, he is, he's unique. He's definitely unique. It seems like, a, you know, a man for the times as well. But, you know, re recently there were comments from, you know, very Democrat, uh, you know, Van Jones saying that basically 
young radical Democrats aren't actually on board with Biden, basically because they feel he's not anti-Israel enough, he's not radical enough. Is that where Democrats are today, or is that just what we see? I mean, I I know there's blue-collar Democrats around America that are great, but I feel like that party has left them. Uh, do they, or is the party in charge and maybe your, their representation, whether you see it from Ilan Omar, like this week and all the insanity, are they there to now appease the most extreme elements of their party, uh, just for, just to cling to power? Can you talk about that evolution of the Democrat party, say, you know, from, you know, when, when you started out to where they are now? Well, look, I, when I started out, they were still had a huge conservative wing and, we passed Reagan's programs. We we had about a third of the Democrats in the House voting with us. Uh, most of those gradually became Republicans. Um, I think what you have today is, is three factions in the Democratic Party. You have a rapidly shrinking moderate faction, uh, blue-collar workers, uh, Latinos, uh, Asian-Americans, uh, all of whom, and, and frankly, a rising number of African-American males uh, who really aren't part of where the left is going. Then you have the the Tammany Hall corrupt faction uh, who gets so much money out of government. Remember, the, this government spends over $4 trillion a year. Yeah. Uh, so there's, there are a lot of people who are at the trough and they'll put up with almost anything because they want to get more more money. Yeah, and that's before you get to Bob Menendez and the gold bars in his right. <laughs> under that's his right. bed. We're talking about people who have sort of honest graft as yeah. opposed to people who have dishonest graft. And then third, you have this rapidly rising, very militant, self-assured, uh, and very aggressive left wing. And that's what we're up against. And I think mm-hmm. uh, what makes them so powerful is people are people in their own party are afraid of them because they are so hostile and they are so aggressive. Uh, and uh, I think the result is there's this constant pressure pushing Biden and others to the left and pushing them away from the American people. That's the other part of this is you have to recognize that uh, these people do not represent the values of more than 15 to 20 percent of the country. And uh, if we can run a campaign this fall that makes that clear enough, uh, it'll be a catastrophic election for the Democrats. So what what voting blocks do you think my father can make the biggest gains? You, you mentioned, you know, obviously Latinos seem to be going good, African-American I, men. I I'm Latinos sort of shocked can... it's not the women. You know, and what's your closing message to them? Because I think that is important that they're sort of, you know, waking up from sort of the, the bonds of the Democrat Party where they always voted, not because they were actually doing anything for you, but that was, you know, they controlled every resource in, in urban. Your pastor was on the Democrat Party payroll. And so... You, you sort of listen to them because you assume they were getting good advice. I, I see it with, you know, union leadership versus union membership. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we don't think that ele- unfettered illegal immigration, we don't think that's bad. That came from the union bosses this week. Uh, you know, and I'm like, wait, you, you don't think that's bad for American workers? Like, are you out of your mind? And yet these people pay dues. Those dues are used to fund Democrat policies that will make them extinct. It, it's insane. It is. And I mean, for the for the UAW to be for Biden, given Biden's position on electric vehicles, which involves 40% less labor than internal combustion engine vehicles. It makes no sense at all. I I would say this. The simplest message this fall is, do you really want 8 million more illegals? Do you really want continued increase in the cost of your food and your gasoline? Do you really want another 100,000 a year dying of drug overdoses? Do you really want America being driven out of the world by aggressive, hostile dictatorships that we're not willing to stand up to. And if that's the world you want, then you've got a great person in Joe Biden because that's what he's going to do. Yeah. Uh, But I think you're going to find that that message shrinks the Democratic vote, whether among suburban women, among African-Americans, among Latinos. Uh, And I think the biggest gains proportionally will probably be from Latinos. I think that they, you know, the, the, the... Latinos who came here legally, and Calista and I are doing a project right now called Journey to America, about people who came here legally, who make this a great country because they obey the rules. They're actually as militant about illegal immigration as anybody else. Maybe more so in some, some that I've spent with. Oh, yeah. And, and partly because they came here to get away from the people who are now coming here. Yeah. 
I mean, they don't want the criminals. They don't want the drug dealers. They don't want the cartels. Uh, and so I think that, that that message has to be there are two futures. There is a great American future with, frankly, an extraordinary level of opportunity that's right around the corner with the right policies. And there is a continuing disaster that will get worse, not better, over the next four years. And you get to decide which future you want. And you do that by voting. I love it. Well, Mr. Speaker, uh, thank you so much for your sage advice and for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. Look forward to definitely having you on more uh, as this heats up because we're, we are early in what's going to be a very long and uh, very aggressive uh, year. So just always appreciate your advice, your support, your friendship. Uh, it, it means the world to us. So thank you again. Great being with you. Thank you. Okay, guys, thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe. I see how many people are watching. I see how many likes there are, and they are not the same. And I don't think the Delta is because of the trolls. While there are quite a few, it's not the difference. Like it so that people know that we're watching. That's how algorithms work. We got to fight back. Also, make sure you're sharing with your friends. Remember, you can also get this on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. When we're done here, we'll download it there. So if you have friends that perhaps get their podcast that way, or if you're driving or whatever it may be, share it that way. Subscribe, download those episodes on there. That gets us out there into the ether. That helps us combat big tech, et cetera, et cetera, because more people will see it. We need you guys to be a part of that, okay? Also, go check out our incredible sponsors. We talk about taking care of your family's well-being, whether that's financial, whether that's health, Go check out donjuniorgold.com to hedge against the insanity. Precious metals, gold, silver. You can do it tax and penalty free. It's a big deal. You can hedge against the nonsense that's going on right now in the world. Learn, educate yourself. Donjuniorgold, D-O-N-J-R gold.com. Learn more. Let them take you through the process step by step. I'm sure you'll learn a lot one way or the other. And that's what a big part of what this is about, is educating yourselves. So check it out, donjuniorgold.com. Also, guys, go check out twc.health slash triggered for 15% off the wellness company's emergency medical kit, right? Uh, Z-Pack, amoxicillin, ivermectin for a crisis, uh, whatever it may be, whether it's a major health outbreak, whether it's a tick bite, whatever it is, or something in between, Make sure you have that. We've seen what goes on in a time of crisis. We've seen the lines, the costs, the weight. Make sure you're prepared and you have something stashed away in the event of an emergency, okay? That's a no-brainer. We take care of our financial health. We take care of our actual health. All of them important in taking care of our families. So go to TWC, like the wellness company, twc.health slash triggered for a 15% discount on the emergency medical kit you won't regret it because it's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. Guys, you're the best. Again, seeing a couple more likes, but not enough. Like it, share it, subscribe. I will see you guys soon.